Welcome to the Five By, your bi-weekly dose of quickfire board game reviews. On this episode, Mason hails a cab and ticket to ride New York, Ruth feeds some pretty little songbirds and peep mots, Meeple Lady gets away scot-free in escape plan, and I work some peasants to death in village. But first, Laura acquires real estate assets like trading cards for billionaires in Monopoly Deal. Hey everyone, it's Laura. So here's the thing. If you listen to this podcast, there's a good chance you're really into board games. And if you're really into board games, there's a good chance you loathe Monopoly with the fiery hatred of a thousand sons. But we all know there will come a time in our lives when a friend or relative or adorable wide-eyed child will ask us to play Monopoly with them. And if you want to make them happy in 15 minutes instead of three to four hours, I have a game for you. Monopoly Deal is a two to five player card game originally published by Parker Brothers in 2008. It's had a bunch of different reprintings from different publishers, and the version I have is the one from Hasbro. The designer and artist, well, they're uncredited, but according to BGG, it was designed by Katherine Chapman. So we'll go with that. To win Monopoly Deal, you need to be the first player to collect three sets of Monopolies. Those sets are the same as the classic board game. For example, you could try to collect four railroads or two utility companies. The way you get property cards is drawing them from the draw deck, playing action cards to swap or steal them, or receiving them as payment from other players. Gameplay is simple. On your turn, you draw two cards and play up to three. You could play an action card that lets you draw more cards or collect rent or steal a property. Almost all of the action cards have a take that element, which, yeah, will cause some groans and general consternation, but they don't feel particularly mean. Except maybe the deal breaker card, which lets you steal a completed monopoly from another player. People can get a bit riled up over that one. The second type of play you can make on your turn is to bank money. Unlike the original board game, you don't start with any, so you have to play cards from your hand to create a cash reserve. The game calls this your bank. And when it comes to money, Monopoly Deal has a lot of interesting and charmingly bizarre mechanics, which I'll get into more later. The final type of card you can play is a property card. You don't have to play a whole set at once, but that approach can be risky. The deck has seven action cards that let you swap or steal a property from an incomplete set, and only two that let you steal a complete set. Also, if the money in your bank runs out, you'll have to start paying with the property cards in your play area. The ones in your hand are safe. Then why not always wait for a full set? Well, there's a seven card hand limit at the end of your turn, so you might have to play some property cards before you're ready to avoid discarding more valuable cards when your turn is over. So back to money. Every card in Monopoly Deal has a monetary value. You can bank money cards, obviously, but you can also bank action cards. When you do, that converts them into currency for the rest of the game. They can't be switched back. The only cards that can't be banked are property cards, but as I mentioned earlier, you can still use them to pay other players when you run out of money. And really, that's the only purpose of money in this game, to protect your properties. Maybe also to give you an Ebenezer Scrooge-like satisfaction when you start piling up millions and millions of dollars in your bank. My precious. But what happens if your good fortune suddenly dries up and you can't pay? Well, you just hand over all the cards in your play area and start fresh. No debt. Just like real life. And also just like real life, no one ever has to give change. So if someone plays a card to collect $2 million from you, and you only have a $5 million bill in your bank, you lose the whole thing. So be sure to keep some smaller denominations in your bank. And that's pretty much it. I'm sure at least a few of you are confused about why I'm reviewing this game. Is it going to blow the barn doors off? No. Is it highly strategic? No. But what it does, it does well, which is provide an entertaining, Monopoly-like experience in only 15 minutes. It's easy to teach and goes over well with Monopoly fans. And it's also something my game group pulls out once in a while as a filler. 
Of course, if you don't like Take That Games, you won't like this one either, but at least you'll only have to not like it for 10 to 15 minutes. Monopoly Deal costs about 10 US dollars, but I've seen it go on sale for half that amount. The card quality is what you'd expect for a mass market game, and the artwork is simple but lively. If you don't enjoy Monopoly but know that at some point you'll be asked to play it, do yourself a favor and pick up this game. Or let me know what game in your collection serves as your Monopoly averter. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. The gaming community, at least outside Germany, has an interesting dynamic with Inca and Marcus brand. Most of us know their names and know their award-winning game designers with a fairly large ludology. But ask most of us to name any games in that long and venerated list, and we probably won't be able to come up with any of their popular and award-winning children's games or the tons of games they've made that have never left Germany. The first thing to pop into a lot of our heads is the Exit series of Escape Room games, or the popular Eurogame Rajas of the Ganges, or maybe Knock Mal, the game arguably responsible for the recent explosion in popularity of Roland Rights. I'll admit, I don't know the majority of their ludology. Many, if not most of them, fall outside either my taste or age range, and of the games I do know, well, they're not all winners. But the game that will always and forever cement them as first-class designers for me is Village. Eurogamers know this game. It hit the genre with a bang in 2011 and won the 2012 Kennerspiel des Jahres and Deutscher Spielpreis, two of the biggest awards in modern board gaming. It spawned two expansions and a spin-off, and has been a stable cornerstone in the libraries of all 19 companies responsible for publishing it in various languages. In the US right now, it's Stronghold Games. A lot, and I mean a lot, of people default to calling Village a worker placement game. But it's not, and I actually think that description does the game a disservice, especially for new players coming to it for the first time. If those players have even a passing familiarity with worker placement, Village won't live up to those expectations. It has all the hallmarks of your typical Euro game, victory points, resource management, order fulfillment, political advancement, and even a travel map. But at its heart, Village is an action selection game that happens to have workers in it. Every turn, players pull a randomly seated influence cube off one of the board's spaces to perform an action. Influence cubes then become a type of currency, so one of the key mechanisms in the game is pulling the right color cubes from your current action to spend on a future one. It's a delicate tension that can sometimes leave you scrambling to make your plan work in light of other players scooping up all the green cubes before you could get to one. The inaccurate worker placement description originates from players being able to send their family members to action spaces to either enhance its benefit or change its cost. Even though it's not classic worker placement, it's still great because it also triggers Village's most famous mechanism, the passage of time. Each worker is marked with a generation from one to four. You start the game with your first generation family members, then bring newer or higher numbered ones in as the game progresses. The individual player boards have a time track around the edge, and when family members are sent out to learn a trade, players advance the marker on that time track. Every time the marker makes one full lap around the track, one worker from the oldest generation that player has in play dies. Yeah, you lose the worker for the rest of the game, because you sent them out to toil as a wagon maker until they work themselves to death. But hey, at least you didn't have to spend influence on that wagon, right? As workers die, they're placed into the village chronicle, and players score points for having a lot of famous dead people in their family. If there's already too many famous dead people in a particular profession, anyone else that dies doing that work just gets dumped into an unmarked grave. Fame is fickle, and small villages like this ain't got time for copycats. I kid, but this mechanism really does set Village apart from nearly any other game I've played, and it hasn't really been replicated. While much of the board might seem familiar to the midweight Euro crowd, the combination of action selection, workers enhancing action spaces, and the passage of in-game time makes Village 
basically a genre of one. The base game does have a few flaws, primarily that aforementioned travel map. Acquiring significant points from travel requires slavish dedication to it, and mostly to the detriment of other paths to victory. It's very expensive, and it doesn't always pan out, especially if other players see what you're trying to do and block you. Luckily, the Village Port expansion fixes the issue. The port's combination of remote monasteries, exotic trade goods, and fickle boat captains is a far more interesting and integrated puzzle than the original travel, and it's an expansion I'll never play without. The Village Inn expansion isn't nearly so essential, but it adds the fun twist of recruiting one-time benefits from patrons of the tavern at the expense of turning one of your family members into a drunkard who will die alone and unremembered. I used the term stable cornerstone earlier, and that's absolutely how I'd describe Village's place in modern board games. It's not a big flashy thing, it landed before Cult of the New was a popular phrase, and it's been around long enough not to qualify for it anymore. But there's a reason we still know it, and why it's still around. It's still one of the most unique Euro games available, and you should absolutely play it before you're just a passage in a local history book. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games pretty much everywhere, including BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Ticket to Ride New York. If you are an even casual listener to us here on the 5 by you most likely are at least passingly familiar with Alan Moon's 2004 mega smash hit modern board game classic Ticket to Ride. Even on the off chance you've never personally played it, you most likely have a basic understanding of the concept and gameplay. I'm going to assume for the purposes of this discussion that this is the case. I apologize in advance to any of you who feel lost for not being more familiar with Ticket to Ride, but you are certainly well within your rights to skip over me this week, or you could of course avail yourself of any one of the significant number of YouTube videos already covering this huge multi-million seller game. Like a lot of people, one of the earlier big titles that pulled me into modern hobby gaming was A Ticket to Ride. I think we already had Castles of Burgundy, Carcassonne, Trois, and maybe a few others when Megan bought me Ticket to Ride Europe for Christmas 2013. So I have a special affinity for the Europe map in particular since it was one of the first ones we really played a lot of. In the intervening years, we bought the original version with its small expansion as well as a number of the other map packs. In general, I'm sort of off of expansions anymore, for me they often make a game more complicated instead of more interesting, but TTR maps are an exception. The completist in me, of course, would ultimately like to have all of them, but the cheapskate in me is only willing to buy them at a discount. Last year, when Target announced an exclusive, low-priced, small-box version of this game we love, I was both excited and somewhat concerned. Ticket to Ride New York could have easily been just a callous cash grab by two big corporations banking on exclusivity and name recognition. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not that, but it also it's a great implementation of this game system we love so much. The vast majority of our 20 plus plays of New York have been at two, which should come as no surprise to anyone familiar with my whole deal. Unlike some of our larger map expansions, where we're casually building around each other and maximizing completely separate areas of the board, New York is so small that there's little to no option to avoid conflict. The map itself is not particularly difficult, and none of the routes are complicated, but because there are so few routes, because you have so few trains, and because the playtime is so short, usually under 20 minutes at 2 players and not much more at 4, everyone is constantly in everyone else's way. The small map, scant handful of trains, and short playing time also seem to have blown up my long-term strategy of drawing more and more tickets, hoping to piggyback off previously completed routes. The couple of times I've tried this in New York, I have been summarily destroyed, mostly because at two-player, you can find yourself in a situation where it's not possible to complete either of the routes you've drawn, even if you were very nearly there already. This map is highly confrontational, and seems mostly to reward risk aversion and flexibility. And of course, as always, rushing the endgame. 
I think this in particular is why Megan enjoys the little box version of Ticket to Ride so much. Given any opportunity to rush the end and smash long-term plans I've built, Megan will take it and exploit it to her benefit. Like many of our other favorites, the New York map strongly rewards tactical flexibility and in some ways punishes commitment to long-term strategies. One interesting addition to the scoring in this version are the destinations with coins on them, indicating they're a landmark or a tourist attraction or something. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. You get a bonus point for each of these you've connected to. It feels like a substitute for the longest map or most tickets bonus in other versions. While I'm not sure it's a viable strategy to try to get all of those bonus points, if you focused on that instead of completing one or two extra tickets, you might still be able to make a strong showing. Our games are often tied or separated by a single point, so everything counts here. One of my gripes with New York is the tiebreaker, number of tickets completed. In the two-player game, you often both complete the same number of tickets, usually only two or three. So we have house ruled that the second tiebreaker is the longest route, like in some other Ticket to Ride versions. My big concern before actually getting TTR New York was that the $20 price point and essentially mass market availability of this version would compromise quality, components, fit, finish, etc. I sort of assumed it would be something like that terrible new version of Metro Queen put out last year, with cardboard train chits instead of the wooden trains like the original version. While there's certainly less in the box, and the box is, of course, much smaller than any of the larger editions of Ticket to Ride, the print quality of the cards, the fit and finish of the box, and the plastic trains are all exactly what you come to expect from the other Ticket titles. Though it's not a two-player-only game, it does fit perfectly on my two-player game shelf, being the same size as the Cosmos 20cm boxes like Patchwork or Lost Cities, which makes me very happy. The rulebook is cleverly done up as a travel brochure, and I think it's a stellar example of how to explain a game to someone who's never played a game before. So, who should buy Ticket to Ride New York? People who already love Ticket to Ride, but want a little version they can throw in their bag. People who like small box, quick, light, tactical games. People who would like Ticket to Ride more if it was highly confrontational. And people who need a reasonably priced board game gift for friends or relatives they wish played more games. I give Ticket to Ride New York 2 out of 2 thumbs up from the lumpy fake Fonzie on the box cover, though it's possibly meant to be Henry Winkler's character from Lords of Flatbush, which would make more sense because Happy Days takes place in Milwaukee. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here watching beautiful North Carolina spring days from indoors as I attempt to avoid the pollen covering everything. Luckily from my windows, I can see plenty of wildlife, much of it bringing to mind 2018's Peep Mutt published by Lookout Spiel. Designed by Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle, this is a two-to-four player card game that has players spotting songbirds as they visit a garden feeder. During the game, players are going to play bird cards from their hand to the ground beneath one of the perches of the feeder. If the combined strength of birds waiting beneath a perch is greater than that of the single bird currently feeding, they'll cause it to fly off into the active player's collection for potential scoring at the end of the game. In addition, the player will get a seed card worth points, the position of which depends on the difference between the two values. The next strongest bird in line then gets to move up to the perch, and a quick check is done to see if the birds in line are still stronger, which would chain another collection of bird and seed cards for the player. If, however, the bird they played at the beginning of their turn didn't cause the feeding bird to be outmatched, the active player would instead get the opportunity to play a bird into their collection directly from their hand before drawing back up. As the game continues in this way, birds keep gathering to feed and players attempt to collect the most visitors of each species, along with the elusive and valuable mated pairs that might show up. However, pests such as squirrels and crows are also a attracted to bird feeders, and sure enough they show up in peep mats, taking away points, by stealing seeds in the case of the farmer, while the crows scare off songbirds. The game ends once the feeder can no longer be restocked, and then players get to make one final, important adjustment to their collection, as they add two of the four bird
bird cards in their hand to those collected cards before scoring. Mated pairs, as in the two bird cards that have the same species and value, will always score a player 5 points, and collected seed cards are worth their face value. But players only get to score their collected bird cards for their value if they have the majority in the species represented. This makes that fact that you get to keep a pair of cards from your hand a very important thing to remember. It certainly makes for some interesting decisions as the game winds up, due to the uncertainty it brings to scoring. Since you can't be sure if another player is holding the exact cards they need to snatch a majority. Turns throughout the game are already pretty thinky as you math out whether collecting seeds will come with a squirrel, or how to make a chain reaction occur at a perch, so this extra consideration towards the end makes for some really tough decisions, and I love it. Figuring out whether I can safely play a bird down that I want, in the hopes of collecting it once it starts to feed, means guessing what my opponent needs, and if they'll notice how much I need that card. There's certainly moments where I try to bluff disinterest in a card, hoping no one's spotted how well it matches my collection, and whether I eventually succeed or fail, those moments are always risky and fun. The game might not be as simple as some cards with numbers games because of the math, but the rulebook is nice and clear, featuring a ton of examples and illustrations. So once one person has the rules down, teaching isn't a chore at all. Which is perfect because this is a game I want to share with everyone. The theme seems fresh to those bored of zombies and fantasy warfare, and it gives Peatmonts the potential to bring in new players, a fact that's helped by it being so very pretty. The game features beautifully rendered illustrations from Mike Langman, which are almost the style of a vintage birding look, and it remains eye-catching despite the muted tones thanks to the use of bolder color for framing in order to distinguish each species or suit of cards. Bird cards are laid out clearly with their points shown in the form of eggs, as well as their species and strength information, and my copy even has both the German and English names of the birds. This double coding between names and color choices helps with distinguishing what someone else is holding across the table. The design duo of Ridback, or Pinchbiddle if you prefer, have created a quick playing card game that grabs your attention with an interesting theme, but holds it with satisfyingly thinky gameplay. I've almost always played the game with just two people, and it certainly holds up at that lower player count, creating a tense back and forth that provides a welcome accompaniment to a cup of coffee or a meal. Now there's been a lot of recent talk about Wingspan, a larger engine building game that also has a bird theme. But Peepmots was my first birdwatching game, and I think it's well worth drawing attention to. It's beautiful, it's different, it's mathy enough to get you thinking while being short enough to act as a filler if that's what's needed. And most importantly, it's a hell of a lot of fun. If you're looking for a small box card game that doesn't skimp on gameplay and torturous decisions, then check out Peepmots for sure, and let me know what you think. When I'm not watching birds from my window, you can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. We've all watched countless heist films. A group of skilled individuals lay out a plan, execute said plan, and grab the loot. And then, what's the saying? The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry? Well then shoot, um, plan B, hide the loot and lay low for now. But now the time is up, and we all have to grab our hidden loot and get out of this city. Welcome to Escape Plan, the latest game designed by Vital Lacerda, with artwork from Ian O'Toole, published by Eagle Griffin Games in 2019. Escape Plan picks up right at this moment of the heist narrative. Players have three days to evade the cops, get their money, and get the heck out of town. Lacerda himself has said that he just adores movies and is constantly inspired by them when designing board games. 
An escape plan manages to capture the tenseness of those heist films we're so familiar with, all the while figuring out the game's puzzly interconnectivity that is a signature of Lacerda's board games. Each day has six phases. Players get their income, the police start to close the exits, the city gets revealed, change turn order, players take their turns, and then they prepare for the next day. At the start of the game, you don't know which one of the three exits is the correct one, and you also don't get to see where different locations are on the board because the city hasn't been completely built out yet. I really enjoy this aspect of the game because it forces you to make decisions with the new information and locations presented to you at the start of each day. On your turn, you either move or rest. That's it. Simple, right? But wait, it's a Lacerda game. When you do a move action, you move one to three spaces on the board, try and avoid the police, and visit a location. The most common locations to visit are businesses and safe houses, where you can either collect endgame VPs or upfront cash to help you with your getaway. Each player receives a different escape plan and a player board, which holds asset and equipment tiles and contact cards, as well as tracks your income, wounds, and executive actions, which are free or paid actions you can take during your turn at any time. The more certain actions you complete, the more locations on your player board you unlock, thus increasing your capacity to hold all these various items. Your income goes down the more locations you visit, as you drop off a cube from your player board to indicate you've done an action there. There are also various locations on the board that assist with movement, the subway stop and the helipad, the convenience store, where you can purchase equipment to evade the police, or you can raid lockers for money if you have a key, and the clinic and the hospital, where you can heal your wounds. There's also a chapel where you can decrease your notoriety. Notoriety is a huge element in this game. Doing just about anything will increase decrease your notoriety, which recalculates after every single action round. Notoriety is a track that allows you to possibly get more money at the lockers and unlock acetals, but essentially puts a target on your back because when you cross certain thresholds on the notoriety track, all the other players remove the police toward you. And that's not good in this game. Also not good is getting caught by the police. When you enter a hex with police on it, nothing happens. But when you leave that hex, you will get wounds. Players can also employ biker gangs to help evade the police or reduce notoriety as an executive action. Lastly, if you decide not to move on your turn, you can rest. Resting means you flip back all your contact cards and equipment tiles on your board, as well as your first aid tile. Those items are now available again. And you can only rest once per day, a total of three times in the entire game. But since you have so few actions, I wouldn't advise taking this action unless you absolutely have to. The game does an excellent job of making you feel the weight and pressure of being hunted. There are so few actions in the game, about 12 to 15 actions total, and that every single step has such a huge effect on the game. You're constantly looking over your shoulder and wondering if another player's actions will send the police over in your direction. Do you risk looking for more loot, or do you just run over to the exit as soon as you can? Well, if you delay, once someone exits, each action will cost each player one more dollar. And depending on when you exit, that costs more as well. The first person to exit pays nothing. If you don't exit the game, you're just out of contention from even possibly winning the game. For those who escape, they count their cash in hand and money they've collected from visiting locations, and the person with the most money wins the game. The game board is double-sided and scales differently for player counts. For fans of Kanban, the character of Sandra shows up in Escape Plan and is the Automa for the one-player game. I just realized that Sandra is Lacerda's wife's name, and that made me chuckle. Cool beans, I think. <laughs> Overall, I just love this game, and probably Lacerda's lightest to date. But, and that's a big but, it's still a Lacerda game, which means it's still pretty heavy and there are a lot of rules to remember. The rulebook is written well and clear, 
and the iconography is great, so it's just a matter of if you want to invest the time in learning this game, which plays in about 60 to 120 minutes. The first time I played the game, it was over in about 90 minutes, and it felt really short for one of his games, but the more times I've played this, the richer gameplay has become. The game shines when people are actively trying to send the police over to your opponent's neck of the woods when the options are there for placement. The theme for Escape Plan works well for the mechanisms, and because of that, it seems more intuitive and easier to pick up than his other games. I also love the variability of each game because the board will be built out differently each time. And that's Escape Plan. Thanks, Eagle Griffin Games, for giving me a copy of this game. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! You've been listening to The 5 by the all-stuff, no-fluff, and just long-enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at The 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Gateway Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.